Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. I'm Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Skirball Campus and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast. I very much look forward to sharing with you a conversation with Professor Roberta Qual. Roberta Rosenthal Qual is the Raymond P. Nero Professor at DePaul University College of Law. Qual is an internationally renowned scholar and lecturer, and she has published on Jewish law, culture, and intellectual property. Her long list of publications includes The Myth of the Cultural Jew, Culture and Law and Jewish Tradition, The Soul of Creativity, and her newest book is Remix Judaism, Preserving Tradition in a Diverse World, which came out in 2020 and will come out again in an updated edition in February of 22. And it will be the subject of our conversation today, which I really look forward to kicking off. So welcome, Professor Qual. I look forward to our conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. I'd like to begin with the new part of the updated edition, which cites, among other things, the more recent 2020 Pew report on Jewish Americans. And you cite one of the salient statistics, and I'll um, recite it here to refresh our listeners' memories. 76% of American Jews say that being Jewish is either somewhat or very important to them. But I think you'll agree not necessarily in traditional ways. And a key to the spirit of your book is that you engage deeply with Jewish tradition and specifically Jewish law, but you also go out of your way to recognize that most Jews don't relate to Jewish law as a definitive or even primary authority for their behaviors and attitudes. What is the rich and productive tension between those two approaches to the tradition? It, it, it is perceived as a tension, I would agree, but I think it does not necessarily have to be perceived as a tension, particularly for communities that are not living according to Jewish law. So in other words, who are not living a halakhic lifestyle, right, which is the majority of American Jews, you know, roughly 80 percent of American Jews are not necessarily uh, living. They're not at all living according to Jewish law. And Pew makes that very, very clear. In fact, uh, in that question that Pew asks about elements of Jewish identity, where Pew offers about 10 or 11 examples uh, observing Jewish law is the least popular. Having said that, however, I think what Remix Judaism um, seeks to do is to bring awareness to the fact that although Jewish tradition and even Jewish culture, I would argue, is steeped in Jewish law, what's important for um, religiously liberal Jews and I define that as really Jews who identify with movements such as the conservative movement, reform Judaism, reconstructing Judaism, all the way, all the way to the left. I think what's important for, for, for Jews in these groups to realize is that Jewish tradition and Jewish law do not have to necessarily be completely aligned. And so therefore, what Remix Judaism seeks to do is to provide a path. It's a guidebook for how to deepen your connection to Jewish tradition, um, both for your own 
personal development and your own personal sense of 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 value um, and growth, but also for the sake of transmission. But that celebrating Jewish tradition does not necessarily have to be strongly tied to the strict observance of Jewish law. And by that, I mean observing the law by dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But what it does require is an increased attention to observance of Jewish tradition and the celebration, I would say, of Jewish tradition. You write that in 21st century America, meaningful Jewish identity must be actively cultivated if it is to continue. Meaning, as I read it, that being Jewish or Jewishness or Judaism is a pursuit, not a status. Mm -hmm. The 2020 Pew report aside, however, hasn't this always been the case or at least always in our lifetimes and much of the 20th century? That's an excellent question. And it's something that I've actually thought a lot about. What is different about this moment in time from, let's say, um, the decades prior, you know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Or maybe the second century BCE when the Jews were having a civil war because of sure. Hanukkah and uh, the Hasmoneans wanted a certain kind of religiosity and the, the Hellenizing uh, Greek speaking Jews wanted a different kind. Sure, sure. Absolutely. So I, I think that's an important question to, to kind of drill down on um, as a prelude to, to my response. I will share with you that over this winter, uh, I am editing the Oxford Handbook of Jewish Law, co-editing uh, with two other scholars, um, and I am writing the essay on lawmaking and the conservative movement. So as a result, um, this past winter, I spent a lot of time with the proceedings of the Rabbinical Assembly and particularly the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards. Um, I know that the reform movement also has an, an analogous committee that deals with law, and, and this is the conservative movement's committee. And I found some fascinating language. So the data I was looking at goes back to the 90s. 1940s. And I read a paragraph to my husband. It was a Shabbat afternoon and we were both sitting in our in our living room reading. And basically it was it was it was one of the rabbis on the law committee saying, you know, our congregants are not going to synagogue and they're not observing the, the, the rules of kashrut. And, what, and, and I said to my husband, when do you think this was written? And my husband said, well, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe this year. I said, yes, exactly. So that is true. Yeah, there, there's certainly truth to your to your question. But I do think we are at a different time right now. And so what are the differences? For one thing, the United States as a whole um, is becoming increasingly secular. This isn't just affecting the Jewish religion. Um, there's a lot of data to support the fact that um, our country as a whole, there is less interest in religion generally. There is less interest in religious tradition. We have the rise of what is called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not the N-U-N-S, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, and, and many, many um, articles have been coming out about that. The research of Gen Z, the, the cohort that's now sitting in my classrooms and possibly even in your in your institution as well, studying these are people born between 1995 and 2010, give or take. Again, decreasing interest in religion, tradition, and that's affecting how they view Judaism, those who are Jewish. Um, there is there's not a lot of interest in joining. There's they're, they're spiritual, but not necessarily religious. We hear that frequently. And there's less attachment to Judaism and the Jewish people and, and certainly to Israel as well. And Pew substantiates that specifically for the Jewish community. 
I think you also have to keep in mind that as Jews in the United States and other parts of the diaspora, we are living as a cultural religious minority. Um, that has always been the case. That has never changed. But I think when the um, society surrounding us is becoming increasingly secularized, that has an impact on the American Jewish community, who is also becoming increasingly secularized. And, you know, to state the obvious that Pew also talks about substantially, we have the rate of intermarriage um, now for non-Orthodox Jews is roughly 72 percent. And if you look to the youngest cohort that was, again, examined under Pew, you know, roughly corresponding with Gen Z that I spoke of before, you see the future, which is perhaps even an increase in that number. That was not the case um, in the decades of the 50s, the 60s and the 70s that did not the intermarriage rate did not start to, to really rise until the early 70s. Now, I want to be clear, you know, in remixed Judaism, I have a chapter on marriage I, and that chapter discusses intermarriage fully. Um, I speak to organizations that are composed of rabbis and others who are servicing the interfaith community. And my book is designed um, in part to be used by Jews who are in interfaith relationships. Um, but I think it's important to underscore that um, the effort that it requires to transmit in a society that A, is increasingly secular to begin with, and B, uh, the Jewish community is increasingly intermarried. It's not like we can just sort of sit back and assume that we're going to have Judaism and we're going to have Jewish tradition outside of the communities that are that are strictly religiously observant. I want to pick up on the sociological tenor of your uh, observations just now, not by talking more about intermarriage, although it's important, obviously, for all the reasons you cited, but more sociologically in the sense of being Jewish as participating in some kind of Jewish community. Does that strike you as a useful measure for success of the Jewish project? Meaning, Maybe you feel so Jewish, maybe you don't feel so Jewish, but you're still a member of a JCC or you're still a member of a synagogue. Is that going to be a dead end for us in the future, as many people would say? I hear two separate questions. I mean, there's is that going to be a dead end, meaning are Jewish institutions not going to continue to thrive in the same way that they have? And then there's also the question of is community um, observance, is that a necessary part of remix Judaism? So I'll start with the second one is is community observance uh, part of the remix equation? Um, I think it is for sure. Um, I, you know, remix Judaism, the book itself is not focused on the institutional piece of Judaism. That was an intentional choice I made. Um, it's not that I don't think it's important. Certainly the chapter on education deals a lot with Jewish institutions and the epilogue deals with emergent Jewish institutions and how things are being done a little differently in certain locations and in certain communities. But the, the focus of remix Judaism is really more home and family. But that isn't to say that I don't think Jewish community is vital for the continuation of Judaism. And it's interesting because over the past year and a half, I've actually spoken at, you know, at so many synagogues, um, all of whom have been either reform, conservative, reconstructing Judaism. And and yet uh, some of them have been in very small towns and, and the concerns are really the same. Um, community is important because at base, Judaism is a communal religion. There's so much of it that is community based. However, however, from the standpoint of transmission, you really need the home piece of it as well, um, because what kids learn is through consistency. If you celebrate Shabbat, uh, even again, if you're not dyed in the eyes, crossing the T's, whatever, but you have certain aspects of your Shabbat celebration that are consistent, that's how kids learn. 
um, not only to appreciate, but to love, to love Jewish tradition and camps. You know, camps are another um, vital piece of um, of Jewish communal tradition. That's really mostly how kids in religiously liberal communities um, can exercise that community piece for themselves. It's not that they, they don't necessarily love sitting in services, right? But they do love what goes on in camp, um, as particularly if it's a camp that's that's Jewishly affiliated where there are what I call thicker cultural norms. In other words, there's a meaningful presence to, to the camp. And so, yes, I think that that is really important. So the second question, I think is a question that that the Jewish institutional communal structure really needs to think about very carefully, because I think there's a synergy, a connection between the level of tradition that is being perpetuated and the long-term health of Jewish communal institutions. And without a deepening of the cultural religious tradition along the lines of what remix Judaism is advocating and teaching about how to achieve, I don't see our communal structures necessarily being present for us in the form that they currently are, or even in a form that's likely to perpetuate Jewish tradition outside of the most observant communities. And that's what keeps me up at night. And I think that's also something we don't talk about enough. And so I would love to do more communal um, discussion of these concepts. Usually I talk to synagogues, sometimes to JUFs, JCCs occasionally. But I think that larger issue of what is the Jewish communal structure going to look like, I think that's something that is not necessarily sufficiently appreciated across the board. The College Commons podcast is proud to be part of HUC Connect, the Hebrew Union College's online platform for continuing education. HUC Connect features four programs, webinars, live conversations with social and cultural influencers on topics of civil society, arts and culture, religion, and redefining allyship, Community Connect, ready-made lesson plans for synagogue and community learning, The Masterclass, live sessions of Judaica with HUC faculty exclusively for our alumni. Enroll soon because seats are limited. And of course, the College Commons podcast, in-depth conversations with Judaism's leading thinkers. For more information about HUC Connect and all it has to offer, visit huc.edu slash hucconnect. And now, back to our program. In one of your publications, uh, The Myth of the Cultural Jew, you write of the dangers of cultural, quote-unquote, coalescence between the American identity and the Jewish identity. I want to ask you to define coalescence in relation to another key or even hot button term like assimilation or maybe acculturation. Sure. Well, the concern with coalescence and assimilation is that what is Jewish and what is American, because we're talking about the United States, obviously, becomes so interwoven that we can't necessarily separate the two and that people are not necessarily separating the two. We see a lot of that today, actually. I mean, it comes up in politics. It comes up in lots of different uh, discourses. You know, I think a good example, you know, is tikkun olam. 
and Tikkun Olam is usually uh, touted as being, well, it's Jewish values and this is how we exercise our Judaism. And I write about Tikkun Olam and remixed Judaism. I have a whole chapter on that. And, and, and of course, Tikkun Olam is important. And I talk about where in our sources Tikkun Olam comes from. But the thing about Tikkun Olam that I think is important, it goes to your question really, is that Tikkun Olam is predicated on Jewish tradition and Jewish sources. The concept of Tikkun Olam as it is currently exercised is very universalist in its nature. You know, so for example, you know, at least prior to COVID, um, my family and I um, really enjoyed working in this in the soup kitchens in Chicago. But every time we did that, and usually our trips were organized more by the, the Chicago Federation, right? But whenever we went, there was always a church group that was also serving with us, right? And it's great and it's wonderful, you know, but the point of it is that is not particularistically Jewish. And so what worries me is that with the kind of coalescence that you're talking about, you know, Jewish tradition has the tendency to be more universalized in its interpretation and its discussion. And there's not enough observance of that which is particular to Jewish tradition. And I think that's the danger of, of the coalescence that, that you mentioned before. I think the exponents of Tikkun Olam in my universe of Reform Judaism would agree that there can be a, a shallow engagement with Tikkun Olam, which doesn't plumb the depths of the Jewish tradition and therefore risks kind of getting lost in the mix of general social justice and, and losing our particularity and the particular contribution of Judaism to social justice. However, I think it's also fair to note that by virtue of the Hebrew term tikkun olam, uh, there is a branding of social justice as a Jewish enterprise, which then folds back and reignites Jewish pride in that work and could actually advance the work of remixed Judaism by, in, in some way, naming and by naming it as a Jewish thing, reappropriating it for the re-Judaization of what could be generic social justice. Yeah, aspirationally, I think that's true. You know, when you just talked about the reappropriation, it reminded me of a joke that my rabbi uh, once told from the pulpit about Tikkun Olam. He spoke of an American visiting Israel for the first time. His Israeli cousin, you know, picks him up at the Ed Ben-Gurion and, and they're talking and the American says to his Israeli cousin, so how, how do you say Tikkun Olam in Hebrew? <laughs> and you know what, like anything else, it's funny because there's some truth to that, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, I think aspirationally, you know, what you said is true for sure. But again, you know, Jewish tradition is about more than tikkun olam. Jewish tradition without Shabbat, for example, it's hard, you know, it's hard to imagine continuity. If, and, and even, you know, the, the, the dietary laws, you know, one of my favorite books that I read and used tremendously uh, as I was writing Remix Judaism was a book from, by the CCIR Press, the Reform Movement's Press, called The Sacred Table. That is a phenomenal book. Uh, it's an anthology of essays. I think everybody who participated is, is a Reform rabbi, if I'm not mistaken. And the, it was a wonderful attempt to sort of create an ethic of kashrut that works for the Reform Movement. And some of those essays were just remarkable. And I, I made such wonderful use of those essays. I, in fact, wrote to the editor, uh, Mary Zamor, and told 
her how much I loved that project. And I, I talk about it, particularly when I when I speak before a reform synagogue, but even for others as well. But that's the kind of thing I think we need to be thinking about more and doing more and encouraging people to do more, because, again, it's about relying and invoking our tradition in ways that have meaning for us as individuals, maybe not the traditional meaning, but meaning for us, because if it has meaning for us, we're going to do it. And that's really the key point. And I can't help but plug another interview on the College Commons podcast with uh, Rabbi Barry Block, who just edited a social justice Torah commentary, uh, which tries to get that Judaic depth back into tikkun olam um, in the spirit of what we're talking about, that uh, we want to promote it and we want to promote it in the context of Jewish richness. I will say this, I hope without defensiveness, that it is my experience that in the reform movement, when tikkun olam is practiced, when it's programatized, when it's when it's really elevated in ways that are sometimes lampooned or oversimplified, in fact, it's getting programatized very much in the context of Shabbat or Jewish ritual. And so it's not quite as blandly universalized as sometimes we caricature it. I would agree with you. But I think the key to what you just said is within the reform movement, right? So what does that mean? Within the reform movement means you're dealing with people who are at some level affiliated with reform institutions. Um, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, very candidly, that the differences among the people I have been speaking to, the differences between a conservative and a reform synagogue on any given night is negligible. And that's a point I actually also wrote about in the preface. The only difference really is that in a conservative synagogue, if it was a nighttime lecture, usually there's an evening minion before. OK, other than that, the people very similar, their concerns are very similar. But therein lies the problem, because what we're we're talking about a group of people that are affiliated, which represents a very small percentage of American Jews at this point, even though the reform movement is still the largest, it's still not having as broad a reach as would be optimal. And the concern then becomes, well, what about the younger generations, those who might have been raised reform? Are they joining? Not so much. Even the same is true, you know, in the conservative movement. So that's really where our challenge is. The challenge isn't the, the people who are affiliated with Reform Judaism. The people that I talk to are committed reform and conservative and reconstructing Jews, and they get that this is a concern. But the question is, what about the next generation? You know, how do right. we reach out to them? And that has to also start with, you know, conversations at the institutional level in, in synagogues, uh, as well as in JCCs, as well as in other kinds of Jewish organizations. I want to pick up on this theme of Jewish depth, particularly in relation to Jewish knowledge. In an article in JTA, you write of a friend whose son's bar mitzvah was derailed or transformed by COVID. The subject of the article said, quote, the only thing that brings me comfort these days is listening to David practice his Torah portion, close quote. Although she didn't completely understand why, listening to her son's practicing Torah gave her a reassuring sense of continuity. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you, if that gut feeling, that kind of atavistic pull on our sensibilities is sufficient for 
a sustainable connection with our civilization and our tradition and our religion? Or do we need to have a higher level of comprehension? Does there need to be greater knowledge base behind any given activity, in this case, Torah reading, uh, for it to be genuine and sustainable? That's a great question. Well, I was speaking actually of a friend of mine um, in that article, though I changed the names, of course, um, but that that was the context of that. So, you know, again, you can't look at something, you know, just in a vacuum, you know, you have to kind of look at, you know, what is what is going on. That situation was a fairly typical situation in which, you know, Judaism is a value in the, that particular home, um, but it's not the only value. And so, you know, it's like a pie. Life is a pie. You know, Judaism is a slice of the pie. You know, could it be a bigger slice of the pie? Sure. Are you dealing with an affiliated family? Yes. Are you dealing with a family that goes to services on the high holidays and celebrates Passover? Yes. Are you dealing with a family where there's Shabbat candles being lit? Not so much, right? So this is like, this is still in the middle of what we could be seeing, right? But by in the middle, I mean, we're not at the fringes of connection. You know, it's it's pretty typical of, I would say, families that, you know, have kids who are in the B'nai Mitzvah age group, right? So parents who are maybe Gen Xers with you know, with children who are in their teens to some degree. Again, a little bit more on the connected side, but certainly not as connected as could be. So do I think that that's enough? You know, it depends. That particular child has grandparents that revere Judaism for whom it's very important. Uh, they, are, they are somewhat educated and, and the kids know that. That's a plus, right? I come from the perspective personally, that the best thing we can do when it comes to transmission is to create a positive environment where our children and our grandchildren are excited about Judaism. Okay. They don't necessarily have to have as deep a pool of knowledge as we might otherwise like, but what they have to have is a feeling in their heart, in their neshama, in their soul, and a feeling that they want to see this perpetuated. You can start inculcating that from the time a child is one, right? And, and get those values across. And ideally you want to build on it. Ideally you want them to absorb a greater degree of knowledge, but we have to be realistic about the world in which people live. Parents are busy. If they can squeeze out a slice for Judaism, we're in good shape, right? For most of them. Uh, the kids are busy, but what you want them to have is a positive feeling about Jewish tradition. And that's easy to do with a commitment to consistency. It really is easy to do, but it takes some effort and it takes some planning. It's not just going to happen, which goes back to my other comment. I think people can build on that um, and deepen that pool and deepen that knowledge base in their own times, in their own circumstances. For many people, the interest and ability to do that doesn't come till the time they're in their 50s. But they're not even going to do that in their 50s if they don't have the positive feeling toward Jewish tradition. The other thing is you want the, to make sure that from a continuity standpoint, those experiences are positive so they can be recreated by kids you know, when they're in a position to to have children, you know, of their own. But that's where consistency is so important. You know, it's not going to happen with just lighting the Hanukkah candles and attending a Passover Seder. That's why Shabbat is so important. Um, so I think these are things that we don't talk enough about 
again, we don't talk about them enough necessarily in synagogues. We don't talk about them enough in, in smaller groups, but I think it really does need to be a focus of what our discourse has to be if we want to see a, a Jewish tradition, uh, again, that's that's going to be sustainable and transmissible in anything other than an Orthodox community. I want to close with some thoughts about Israel and specifically with gratitude to you for including Israel in remixed Judaism. That meant a lot to me. And I think it's particularly important in that you chose to articulate specific lessons from the Israeli Jewish experience and the American Jewish experience that can inform looking forward. I found them really interesting. And I want to ask you to pick up on one of these lessons and share it with us. For most of the time I was writing Remix Judaism, I was really thinking that what I had to say would not be relevant at all to an Israeli audience because they live in a, a place where, you know, there's Judaism is completely in the air. Right. Even if you're not religious, being secular in Israeli secular is completely different from from, you know, diaspora secular. It's a completely different phenomenon. What I found um, on my last trip to Israel, which was the spring before COVID, um, and I was teaching at IDC, and IDC, uh, that's Resigner Law School, so one of the more secular you know, law schools in, in Israel, right? I think I saw maybe all the years I was there, two or three kippot, not a whole lot. But what I real I realized two things that I thought were were really interesting. The first thing I realized is that basically they are doing remix Judaism. They all care. You know, they care about Judaism. They feel most of the ones people that I spoke to, they feel a little bit of pressure and negativity towards the rabbinate, which kind of interferes with their their view of Jewish Jewish tradition. There, there's a coercion element. That's something that's totally absent here in the United States. We, we can't really relate to that phenomenon unless you've been there and you understand what that's about. But in terms of their attitude toward Jewish tradition, they care about Jewish tradition. And that is something that I wish we could bottle that and, and sort of share that water, if you will, you will with, with American Jews, because there is a love of Judaism and there's a love of Jewish tradition. So I think the biggest comparison that we can make that illustrates this is that when researchers ask Israeli Jews, what is your religion? The answer is uniformly, it's Jewish. This whole idea of Jewish without religion, Jews of no religion, it is completely foreign to the Israeli mentality. All right. Does that mean they're all religious? Of course, they're not all religious, but they have this feeling about Judaism and they want their grandkids to be Jewish. They are clear about that and they have no doubt that they will be. We can't say that here in the United States. If you want your grandkids to be Jewish, you got to work hard at it. And especially if you're not in a, a, an Orthodox community, you got to work even a little harder because the norms of your non-Jewish world are basically at tension, at war with the with the Jewish world. And you know, we know which at least that in works. at least in competition. In competition, right? In competition, and and oftentimes prevailing in that competition. So yeah, that's why it does take more work here uh, than it does than it does in Israel. There's there's no question about that. Well, Professor Roberta Qual, I want to thank you for the pleasure of your company and the time that you gave us for this rich conversation. And of course, for Remix Judaism, which will be coming out in an updated edition this February 2022. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
and check out HUC Connect, compelling conversations at the forefront of Jewish learning. For more information about all that HUC Connect has to offer, visit huc.edu slash huc connect.